welcome to episode 13 of the Stranger Times podcast. I'm CK McDonnell, aka Queeve, aka MC Funky Pants, for one regrettable fortnight in 1991 that I'd rather not go into. As I record this, it is Thursday, the 21st of January, 2021. Uh, which, I mean, side note, this is also Black Bin Day where I live. If you don't have Black Bin Day where you are, it's the one day of the month that we can get rid of all the rubbish, not just the recycling, but the actual rubbish, the stuff we can't get rid of any other time. It's a massive day. I mean, the excitement level in this house is immense. You can see it on the street walking up and down. You can see the neighbours looking at each other going, does he know it's Black Bin Day? I better tell him. Because basically, if you miss Black Bin Day, you've got to burn the house down or move. They're the only two options. So it's very exciting. Also, about a week ago, we launched a book. But, I mean, again... Oh, I mean, the black bin doesn't hold much. You've got to really get to squash it down. But yeah, we launched a book. It's been out for a week now. The whole experience has been mostly awesome. And I say mostly awesome because I'll be honest, I want to stand in a bookshop and just look at my book on a shelf for a bit. I want to stand there inappropriately touching it until a staff member, not just it, not myself, but I want to inappropriately touch my book to the point that a staff member says, you're going to have to leave, sir. This is getting weird. You're upsetting other customers. I just, you know, I've, I want to stand in a bloody bookshop mate but that's you know it's 2020 isn't it i know people have told you it's 2021 it's not it's 2020 as far as i'm concerned what's happened now is we've hobbited 2020 what i mean by that is we've made it unnecessarily long we've broken it up into several parts and the whole thing could have been over a lot quicker if we just got some bloody eagles involved but there you go uh, still overall as i said it's been a fantastic week we got some cracking reviews particularly from the times and the guardian i may have mentioned that last week but if not i'll mention it again Times and Guardian, mate. Pretty bloody impressive. And uh, also, I've been on the radio a lot. I've been on the Scala uh, radio station with my showbiz mate, Simon Mayo. Been on Absolute Radio with my actual mate, Jason Manfred. Been on BBC Wales, BBC Newcastle, BBC Sheffield, Talk Sport. I know, I was surprised too. Times Radio. And I'm going on BBC Radio Manchester tomorrow with my good mate, Justin Morehouse. To be honest, one of the nicest things about this whole week has been catching up a lot of old friends that I've not spoken to for a while. And the weird thing is, done rather a lot of it live on the air. I think what I'm taking out of this week is, which we should all take out of it, is if you've not spoken to someone for a while and they're mate, give them a ring. Don't wait for a live radio interview because they don't come along that often. And even when they do, it's not appropriate to ask them how their wife and kids are. You know, so that's my takeaway. Oh, another takeaway, by the way, I, on BBC Wales, I had to follow the new Tom Jones track. Now, to put that in some context for you, that's like uh, being the show on after the moon landing. That's that's a serious business in Wales. That's a difficult thing to follow. I gave it a shot. But more importantly, stop the presses. Big news. And I am not joking here. This is I know I've got I'm, I am cursed with a voice that sounds insincere, but I swear this is true. The new Tom Jones track is absolutely phenomenal. How would I even describe it? Um, it's a spoken word, bluesy thing, sort of via Radiohead. I know that sounds ridiculous. It is brilliant. Check it out. And again, even now, I know a lot of you are sitting there listening to this going, he's just taking the mickey here, isn't he? I'm not. Absolutely incredible. So anyway, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. We also did an online launch event on the day of publication. We did that on the Facebook and on the YouTube. And I was as shocked as anyone. Over 200 people turned up. I mean... Even in a lockdown where I appreciate most of you have now finished Netflix. That was very, we were shocked and genuinely very pleased. And especially because I forgot to mention it on the last two episodes of this podcast, which got me a deserved twat around the ear. 
So yeah, it was great. And so much so that we're going to do more of that. We're going to do more live stuff. Might be some live recordings of podcasts and stuff. Basically, we've got some new ideas of things to be happening. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, by the way, uh, on next week's episode, we will have edited highlights of the live launch event. I say edited highlights because the highlight of the event was Diller the Dog. My legend of a dog did his trick. Uh, Very impressive. Everybody loved it. If you want to see it, it's still on the Facebook feed. Just go to Queen McDonald Facebook page or the Stranger Times Facebook page or it's on my YouTube channel. I have a YouTube channel. I know. I didn't realise that either until the wife told me. Apparently I do. That's up there now as well. Check out any of those places. You'll see the dog as well as uh, live music from my friend Duncan Oakley and my friend and author Mark Stay also interviewed me, asked me a few questions. And I did a live reading of the acknowledgements of my own book which isn't as bad as it sounds. I mean, I'm not going to build it up any more than that, but it was more entertaining than it sounds. I think that's all that covered. Uh, yes. And oh, yes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, brace yourself, though, ladies and germs. I do have a big announcement. Next week's episode will be the last episode of the Stranger Times podcast. Season one. That's right, kids. Uh, we're going to take a temporary break. This is always the idea. I probably should have explained this before now. Season one is ending in the next episode. But after that, brace yourself. Season two, baby. Coming back bigger, brighter than ever. Not sure exactly when it'll be starting up, but uh, might be Halloween. I think we aim for that this time around. It was close to that. So it might be Halloween, what we're now calling 2021. Hashtag, we all know it's still 2020. Still whatever the fake news called 2021 Halloween, maybe then, maybe before. There will probably be a couple of, maybe a couple of episodes sneaked out before then. Don't know. I can tell you now, I've actually got a couple of episodes recorded, a couple of stories recorded. We've got a lot of cool people lined up, to be honest, because a load of stand-ups went, oh, I'll do one. And I'm not going to give you the names now, but let's just say some really good people. I'm actually writing quite a few stories specifically for people who said they'd love to narrate one which is is a lot of fun for me as a writer because, you know, you can play to the characters and give them stuff that really suits them, which is great. I'm also going to be launching a brand new podcast. I'm not going to give any more details on that in a minute, but uh, it's going to be pretty exciting if you like hearing a man ramble. Might even be me rambling and someone else joining in. By rambling here, I mean talking. I'm not going to rock it on my mountain. I mean, me and the dog might do that, but nobody wants to hear a podcast of us doing that. But yes, more details on that next week. That's what we're going to give you the, the trailer there for that. Also, if you have any constructive criticism about this podcast, or you'd just like to drop me an email and tell me how wonderful it is, I've got a very fragile ego. I'll take that every time. Queeve at whitehairedirishman.com. Uh, do sincerely drop us a line. Any thoughts on the pod? Uh, would be lovely to hear. It's it's really nice to hear from, uh, feedback from people. The last week's been great on the feedback from the book and other stuff, and it's been it's been really cool. So please do chime in if you feel so inclined. And finally, in all sincerity, thanks to all of you who've been spreading the word about the Stranger Times, uh, be it the podcast or the novel, particularly in reader groups on Facebook, uh, tweeting it out, etc. Because nothing gets people interested in a book faster than a personal recommendation. So. I know some people have been throwing it up in some various groups and it is sincerely very much appreciated because particularly the certain fan bases that I think probably this the book might appeal to when people have been telling them about it, which has been really lovely. So please consider this episode of the podcast and indeed every episode of the podcast our way of saying thank you for that wonderful support. Damn it, I said I wouldn't cry. I'm going to go all emotional now. Anyway, here's the emotionally distant James Cook with the Stranger Times News. <laughs> 
Red-faced representatives of the Quirelthaclax apocalypse cult emerged from their commune in the early hours of Monday morning to reveal that the world hadn't ended as predicted by their high priest. Their god had been expected to awaken and destroy all unbelievers with his cluster of screaming fallacies at the stroke of midnight on Sunday, but was instead a complete no-show. The cult members held on hopefully for an hour as they weren't completely sure if it was midnight GMT or midnight BST, but at a quarter past one they were forced to admit that it just wasn't going to happen. When questioned on what went wrong, their high priest said that after consulting the unholy entrails, it had become apparent that their ancient slumbering god had simply overslumbered. When asked whether this would lead to a complete cancellation of the apocalypse, or merely a short delay before we're all smashed to death by giant members, he stated that the entrails had indicated the former, as, quote, humanity was completely on track to kill itself anyway. A report has been released by the British Board of Mediums this week, which claims that up to 90% of ghosts at seances are imposters. Spokesmedium Abigail Potts-Shrigley said, For so long people have blamed mediums for getting basic facts about their dead loved ones wrong, when in fact it's the mediums who are the real victims here. Whenever we're wrong, the simple fact is that it's because we've been the butt of some cruel prank played on us by a ghost. She went on to add, We at the British Board of Mediums hope that these new findings will help put to rest any questions about the legitimacy of our profession. Also, your nan's been in touch and she says you should give us all your money. I'm James Cook and to find out more about these stories, go to thestrangertimes.com. Finally, this week's forecast. The Fourth World War will start after an argument about whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. It is. Shut up, Darren, you're an idiot. Thank you, James. This week we return to our regularly scheduled programming. In that is it a brand spanking new short story written by moi and read by the wonderfully talented Alistair Berry. It's called Sacrifice and well, it's probably a searing satire of modern life or something like that, but I mainly wrote it because I bloody hate car salesmen. Uh, quick side note, I went to buy my last car uh, and I was I was well prepared. I had I had the app, I had things with me, I had stuff printed out. I was I was proper. I was in there. My my last car, incidentally, before that, had just been destroyed by horses. So I was in no mood to take any guff. But I went in, well prepared, haggling, and I knew it did a good job because I heard the salesman's manager, 100 percent true call me a fat prick. And I was genuinely thrilled because nothing says you got a good deal like somebody swearing about you and they don't think you can hear. So anyway, this will be read by the svelte and not a prick, Alistair Barry. That's not the greatest link I've ever done, but I'm going to stick with it. As well as being an outstanding comedian actor, Al does the Food Ponce blog where he eats at really fancy restaurants and then writes about it in a witty and charming way. To be honest, it's completely lost on me because I'm the kind of punter who views a meal by how good it is, by how much is on the plate and how big the plate is. I'm surprised me and Alan mates, to be honest, because we have very little in common in that regard. He's very much quality over quantity. I, well, I get called a fat prick by salesmen and half of that is well deserved. Still, I hope in a future life, if I ever decide to class myself up, if I win the lottery, I hope one day to become Al Barry. I mean, I say that, I want to retain my hair. But other than that, anyway. Here is the wonderful Al reading the story, Sacrifice. Take it away, Al. Sacrifice. Now there's a word you don't hear too much these days. It's not cool, is it? 
People don't want to understand the kind of hard work it takes to get ahead in life. Instead, they'd much rather bitch and moan about how tough it is. Millennials. Honestly, my generation didn't have a name. We were too busy just getting stuff done. I've had to make sacrifices throughout my life to get where I am today. I put in long hours as the assistant manager at Uncle Jerry's car dealership. And when it went under, did I sit around and moan? No, I bloody well got another job with Martin. (laughs) Luckily, I knew him from school. But once I had my foot in the door, I had to prove myself just like everybody else. I moved up the ranks, earned my spurs, and then it finally happened. It was like being called up to the first team in the luxury car business, Stratum Motors. And how did I get there? That's right, sacrifice. And don't think it stopped there. You see, Stratum is so much more than an ordinary car dealership. We find high-end cars for truly high-end clients. As my boss Simon says, we're not trying to sell you a Jag, a Beamer or a Bentley. We're trying to help you find the perfect car for you. And if you can't afford that car, you're in the wrong place. He doesn't say that last bit to customers, of course. But to be honest, we've got credit arrangements, so you just need to look like you might be able to afford it, and that'll be enough. Between you and I, repossessions are where a lot of the money comes from. Sell the dream, repossess the nightmare. Stratum is full service. We handle test drives, modifications, insurance. It's a bespoke package for people happy to pay a little more for a little bit more. Thing is, to meet these people, you have to be in the kind of places these people are. That's how I ended up having box seats at City and United, despite football boring me to tears. If you want to meet the money, you have to go where the money hangs out. Sacrifice. It was in a match that I met Daniel Harper, and this meeting led to the sacrifice that got me to where I am today. We bonded straight away. Daniel didn't like football either, but luckily for me, he was a total petrolhead. He already had himself a lovely Bentley and a Porsche 911 as a runaround. After the match, we went out for a few bevies. He was going through a messy divorce and wanted to blow off some steam. The next time around, we just did the drinking and didn't bother with the football. This is what the business, any business really, is built on. Relationships. The whining and dining. Daniel was something big in plastics. I couldn't tell you what exactly, and he said it was too boring to talk about, which was fine by me. He was a great laugh, though, which was a testament to his character, given what he was dealing with. The divorce was getting ugly and his wife had taken the kids. She'd made up some nasty accusations too, really trying to run up the bill. Thankfully, he only got into that when he was seriously drunk. He was just as you'd expect, angry, bitter. Show me a divorcee who isn't. I'd nod and agree because really, when people are talking about that kind of thing, that's all they want. It's venting, isn't it? It was after about a month that he mentioned the group to me. To be honest, I didn't really understand it. I was half cut at the time. He and a select group of friends got together at his place on Tuesday nights and did I fancy it? Sure, I said. By then, he'd already been into the showroom and looked at an Aston Martin that we'd just got in. He was tempted, but his lawyer had told him to hold off until the divorce was finalised. The word was that his ex's bitch-ass brief would go waving any big ticket purchases around in court as proof that Daniel was hiding assets. Why can't a man have nice things just because his marriage is failing? I understood it, of course, even though, being brutally honest, I really needed the sale because of my Janine problem. She came in as a temporary receptionist because Shauna was off having a baby. 
She seemed nice enough at first, quite a plain girl in her thirties. I knew she had a kid, but the dad wasn't around, not sure why. She was very Mancunian, but not so Mancunian that you couldn't understand what she was saying, if you know what I mean. Salt of the earth, or, or so I thought at the time. Anyway, one day, Janine was left to hold the fort because I was out on a test drive and a couple of the other salesmen were off with that flu. To be honest, it was a total screw-up. Policy is that there's always one of us there, no matter what, because our clientele isn't the kind that likes to wait. Simon was off having some personal time and he was late coming back. Best guess, he'd been feeling frisky and had gone for round two with his mistress. The test drive had been booked in, so I left, assuming Simon would be back shortly. Once I'd gone, this fella comes in, black chap, and he's in a big hurry, wants a car. Turns out Janine, the slime minx, is a bit of a secret petrol head herself, so she sees her chance. Gives him the tour. Guy wants a roller. She has access to the keys and lets him go out, on his own mind, to take it for a test drive. I get back, wondering what the hell is going on, and she said that she couldn't leave the place unattended and the guy had an honest face unbelievable. I read of the riot act, then rang Simon, who's on the phone to the police when the guy comes back. Only buys the bloody thing. That evening he's on the news, Stoke's new record signing. You've probably seen him in the paper. When everyone had calmed down, we chalk it all up to a lucky break. To be honest, I told Simon I thought Janine should be gone. You can't have a temp doing things like that. It shows dangerously poor judgment. He keeps her on though. Well, it's his decision, isn't it? But not only that, he also gives her the bloody commission. That's a wad and a half. Of course, Janine, now she's got a taste for it. Every time a new customer comes in, she's chatting away. Simon says she's just friendly, but I see it for what it is. She's building relationships. Anyway, a few weeks go by and there's a regular of ours in looking to upgrade. His wife isn't interested, so she sits in reception with the baby. Her and Janine get chatting. He ends up deciding to hang on to what he's got for another year. But two weeks later, the wife is back in looking for something with a bit more room, you know, for the baby. I try and help, but she says she'll only deal with Janine. I explain that's not Janine's job, but Simon overhears and next thing you know, it is her job. She sells the wag a car and before you can say boo to a goose, Janine is a salesperson. Not only that, she's suddenly opened up a whole new customer base. We're selling SUVs to WAGs like they're going out of fashion and Simon is telling us we could learn a lot from her. I mean, I'm a seasoned professional. This woman just got lucky. And then there's the baking. The bloody baking. She's cranking out the stuff. Biscuits, cakes, almond slices, custard tarts. You name it, she's banging it out and shoving it under people's noses. Devious minx. She saunters over with a trayful, tells the client she made them herself, and boom, before you know it, she's muscling in on all the best opportunities. She's vicious, too. Terry went to the loo, and when he got back, a customer whose wedding he was a groomsman at is buying a Merc convertible off Janine with all the trimmings. It is carnage. Total carnage. So yeah, Janine, top salesperson, two months running is a problem. My commissions are way down and the missus, Karen, and I are barely speaking after my attempt to fight fire with fire boomeranged spectacularly. I had to break the news to her that one of the biggest concert promoters in the country had actually spat out her fruitcake in disgust. I hoped it would motivate her, and it did, but not in the way I'd intended. Next thing, I'm sleeping in the spare room on a single bed and nearly take my eye out on the bloody cross-trainer when I get up in the middle of the night for a waz. 
With all this going on, someone like Daniel was a gateway to a new group of potential customers. I mean, <laughs> yes, please. I was desperate to find a new seam of gold to mine. I was still going to the bloody football all the time, but I'd end up sitting there looking at the same faces. I tried Toastmasters, just a bunch of Audi-driving windbags. Chamber of Commerce? Old men in clapped-out mercs that they'd only replaced with the same but different. The Freemasons? <laughs> same as the Chamber of Commerce, only with added fancy dress. I didn't know what Daniel's thing was, but I thought, why the hell not? So, I rock up to Daniel's place the following Tuesday evening. He's doing a barbecue. It's not really warm, though, but he can just about get away with it. There's six of us. Carl, BMW, looking to upgrade. Drew, baby on the way, needs to swap the Porsche for something more practical. Brad the Yank, just bought a new Aston Martin. And William, driving a Prius, because there's always bloody one. They had jobs, kids and wives stroke partners too, but really, that was of little interest. Anywho, we're having some pretty good steaks and some hot dogs with, frankly, too much onion. Must admit that overall it was a good spread. Got me thinking. Could I be the barbecue guy? Have a grill on the go, waiting for customers to saunter into the showroom. Let's see Janine compete with that. Just because we shift a few pink SUVs doesn't mean our main customer base isn't meat-eating alphas like Daniel and the guys. Well, to be fair, Daniel is clearly the alpha. He's Clarkson, Carl and Brad are Hammonds, and Drew is a May. As for William... Puh, buggered if I know. A terrible mistake, that's what he is. The house is fantastic, although, frankly, it needs a bit of a clean-up. Apparently, Daniel's ex wasn't content with taking the kids and the dogs. She took the cleaner, too. If anything, Daniel seemed more broken by the loss of the pooches than anything. Now I know that makes him sound bad, but anyone with teenage kids would understand. If you want unadulterated love and affection, it's the dog, ten times out of ten. The guys are nice enough. We're chatting, playing billiards, darts. Daniel has a fantastic den-cum-games room. He's even got one of those retro-arcade game table things that I used to play on holidays in Corfu. Really takes me back. The whole night was, you know, mostly just a bunch of guys hanging out. At least it was until Daniel pulls me aside and takes me for a walk down the garden. He tells me about his great-uncle Roger. Bit of a weird recluse, apparently. His estate is still being fought over by four different women. Now there's a man who really knew how to live. Daniel's explaining how the old duffer left him a book. As he's talking, he briefly segues into pointing out that his neighbour is what's-her-name from morning TV, and then he's back talking about Roger. He says that old Rog didn't have a job his whole life, never needed one. He managed to make a fortune for himself through investments. Daniel goes on to say that this book he left was a bit odd. A, uh, what was it? Yes, a grimoire, he called it. I'll be honest, I wasn't sure where he was heading with this. I was growing slightly worried we were all supposed to get naked, and that is not my thing. I told Daniel that very clearly when we'd been in the strip club that time. Nothing wrong with it, of course. I'm just hetero. Very hetero. Extremely hetero. The conversation didn't head in that direction, which was a relief, but I was rather taken aback by where it did go. I'll be honest, when he started talking about magic, I struggled to keep a straight face, but he was getting more and more insistent. Said first off, he tried one thing, out of nothing more than silly curiosity. Did one of those invocations, as he called it, and he said it worked. Something about either killing a plant or bringing it back to life, I can't remember. 
To be honest, I'd had a few drinks by then and I was pissed. He talked a bit more, explained how they need six people and was I interested? Well, I was full of good scotch, great steak and hot dogs with too much onion. So I said, sure, why not? At least it wasn't bumming, which again, absolutely no problem with. One of them used to work at the dealership. Nice guy. When I got back into the games room, it looked very different. In our absence, the guys had moved the billiards and arcade tables to one side. Instead, there, in pride of place, in the middle of the room, sat an altar. I mean, I guess it was an altar, although not like one I'd ever seen before. There was a large bowl, a load of candles, and a two-foot-tall statue of some sort of goat-headed thing. Of more concern was the fact that all the guys were now in fancy dress. And more worrying still, they didn't call it that. They called it ceremonial robes. <laughs> the robes were black and the masks, oh yes, there were masks, were red. They all looked ridiculous. Thing is, though, they were potential customers, and so, yeah, I put the robes on too. Weird thing, I could have sworn that the goat statue doodah winked at me. Obviously, it was just a trick of the light, but still, odd. After that, there was an awful lot of chanting, and I'll be honest, I was bursting for a pee through most of it. So far, so Freemasons. And then they took out a bloody great big knife. Daniel presented it to William. I knew it was him because even though everybody's robes matched, five foot two is still a five foot two. He went around to all of them in turn and each guy cut their upper arm and bled into this bowl. I mean, steady on. Then they came to me. Daniel is ranting about how if I join with them together in brotherhood, there's nothing that could stop us. I did it because, honestly, if given the choice between a bit of blood or a lifetime of embarrassment, I'm giving the blood. It is the English way. Besides, I knew William, the little Prius driving shit, was a plastic surgeon, so I assumed all of this was at least sanitary. He took my blood and then Daniel held the bowl aloft and told me to picture something I wanted to happen. Something real, tangible, not world peace or anything like that. Something that some guy called Bob O'Dare could sort out and it would be done. I couldn't say it out loud or it wouldn't come true. Classic birthday wish rules. I had to write it on a piece of paper that nobody else would see. In an effort to get this over with and get to the loo, I picked something. Selling the Mona Lisa. Daniel put the blood into the big bowl on the altar. I tossed in the paper. There was some more chanting. And then finally, I got to go for a piss. When I came back down, everything was back to normal. The next day, I sold the Mona Lisa. To give you some context, the Mona Lisa is a jag that was owned by an old customer of ours, Pierre. He traded it in. Normally, we don't handle that kind of thing ourselves, but Simon fell in love with it. He gave the customer far too good a price, and then when he came to his senses, realised we needed to get rid of it. It's been sitting in the showroom for four years. Sodding thing has never made it all the way through a test drive without engine trouble. It got its nickname because people love to come in and look at it, but nobody was ever going to buy the bloody thing. Every time Simon laid eyes on it, it wounded his car salesman's soul which, despite what you might have heard, we do have. That morning, I sold it within an hour. A blonde lady with a killer rack comes in, looking to get a BMW, and then she said the car spoke to her. End of story. 
didn't want a test drive, didn't even have to give a discount. And the last time it came up in a staff meeting, Simon had been clear he was happy to discount the hell out of it. He'd even given a couple of unsubtle hints that were it to get stolen or consumed by fire, he would also be fine with that. For that day, at least, I was the belle of the ball. Let's see Janine do that with her weaponized baking. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I was a believer. Not yet. The next week, the group performed a fertility enchantment. I won't lie, the bunny rabbit having to shuffle off its mortal coil seemed OTT, but damn it, if the thing didn't work. Karen was so suspicious of the renewed pep in my step that she even checked if I'd been prescribed any medication. Let's just say that for that week, the troops were out on patrol. Not just mine, either. The other guys reported the same. We had quite the WhatsApp chat going. Not sure what Daniel did in the circumstances. Some things you don't ask. By the week after that, I'll be honest, I was getting into it. I mean, one thing happening, you chalk up to being a coinky-dink, but two... Huh. So yeah, we sacrificed a sheep. Bloody thing shat on the carpet, must have sensed what was coming. According to the grimoire, we could each put the name of one person who stood in our way on a piece of paper, burn it, and this Bob O'Dare fellow will sort it. As it happens, next week we've got a massive sales event at the showroom. Simon is pulling out all the stops as we've got new stock coming in and we need to shift everything on the floor. Janine is wandering around the place like the queen. I mean, it's unbelievable. Previously, I had an agreement with Simon that when he retired, I'd become manager. Suddenly, I'm getting antsy about that. He's evasive when I bring it up. Long story short, I need to reassert my dominance in the showroom. I need a bloody good week. So yes, I held the sheep down. I mean, it's a sheep. They can clone them now. How much are we going to miss one? Simon hit one with his car last year, did eight grand of damage. I'll tell you this, though, stronger than they look, sheep. That little bugger kicked me right in the knackers. I turn up to work the following Monday and I am ready to rumble. I bring donuts too, though. First rule of sales, a spoonful of sugar. Keep smiling. So, yeah, everybody got a donut. Now, hand on heart, I got them from M&S on the Sunday and I brought them straight in on the Monday and left them out in the staff room. An hour after eating one, Janine goes down, vomiting, diarrhoea, the whole nine yards. And get this, she points the finger at me. Says I poisoned the donuts? I mean, come on, that's ridiculous. Like I told Simon, she picked one at random. The donuts were fine. And yes, I know what's really happened, but I can't say that, can I? Oh, oh, Simon, old boy, I know the donut was fine because I sacrificed a sheep last week to get Janine out of the way. All I can do is defend the donuts. In fact, I eat every last remaining one to prove they're fine. Nobody says anything, but I can tell the rest of the crew think it was me. It really throws me off my game. Janine is home recovering and I don't sell one bloody motor all week. Clive ends up as top salesman. That twat and his hairpiece are off to the Bahamas. Lesson learned. I should have been more exact. I decided I really needed to pay more attention in the group meetings and not just mumble along for the chanting bits. To be fair, I'm pretty sure I would have started paying more attention anyway. What with the whole sacrificing a virgin bit? Daniel laid it all out for us. One of the things I hadn't noticed, or he hadn't been telling us about, was the escalation thing. The grimoire was, to use an analogy from a sport I've never really followed, a bit like the weight classes in boxing. 
We'd started off at the flyweight level with the something lucky invocation. Then we'd gone on to some weight that is a bit heavier than flyweight with the fertility thing. Then the evil eye thing had been middleweight. Only thing was, in the grimoire thing, you couldn't drop the weight again, only get heavier. It was all getting a lot heavier. Our only option was to move up to the heavyweight division. A virgin sacrifice. Now, I know, I know, I know, and you're right. W-T-F. But just hang on. First, the thing is, while the price is getting higher, so are the rewards. This time, we could each ask for anything our heart desired and we'd get it. I could ask to be the manager of Stratum Motors, and I bloody would be. No ifs, no buts. Then Janine could bugger off. There'd be no more fox in the chicken coop. Although I suppose she'd be a hen, really, so no more hen in the cock coop. Never mind. The thing was, I'd get my dream job. Now, all right, that is still no excuse for killing a virgin. So with God as my witness, I said no. I did. I slept on it and I came back and said no can do. N-O, negatory. I wasn't going to sacrifice some poor young girl to get what I want in life. I mean, I'm a dad. My two girls are virgins. Well, Sam definitely is, but I don't trust that Marcus prick Jenny's going around with. If I find he's touched my little princess, I'll sacrifice him. But still, though, human life is sacred. This is where Drew came in. He's the head of an NHS trust, and as he said it himself, they'd had a pretty big screw-up. He was vague on the details, but apparently... Through an honest mistake, a couple of organs for transplant were accidentally put into a Saudi Arabian chap who wasn't exactly top of the waiting list. Drew admitted it was bad, but the thing was, if it came out, never mind what it would do to the trust and him, more importantly, it would destroy the public's faith in the organ donation service. If people started opting out of donating, it had cost lives, innocent lives. So fixing it was incredibly important. Sacrificing one life would end up saving hundreds, possibly thousands of others. When you think of it that way, how could you not do it? Then Daniel made an equally excellent point. We were being very ageist and sexist in our thinking. A male pensioner could be a virgin. We were under the impression it had to be Buffy when actually it could be Grandad. All right, not Grandad, but Granduncle. It was a very good point. As it happens, Daniel reread the grimoire later and it did have to be a woman, but still, it could be Anne Whittacombe. Brad, being a yank, didn't know who she was, hard as that is to believe. I mean, the woman is a national treasure. She'd been a government minister, then joined a couple of other fringe parties, become an MEP, helped us to crash out of Europe and danced on TV. Very badly, but still. The point was, she'd had a full life. Well, apart from in one very particular area. Now, obviously, we weren't going to sacrifice the actual Anne Widdicombe. People would notice. But we could get a version of her. Someone who had metaphorically served their time, danced their dances, and, if they were anything like the actual Anne, said some really unpleasant things about the gays. Again, not my bag, but I have no problem with it personally. Live and let live, that's what I say. I mean, with the honourable exception of this virgin, who I now agreed we'd have to kill. Daniel sorted it. Said we could get one on the dark web. Apparently, you can get absolutely anything on the dark web. It's like Amazon meets that bar in Star Wars, only with quite a lot of added pedos. And to be clear, that's horrific. I mean, 
I know I'm sacrificing a virgin, so I'm on shaky moral ground, but still, horrendous. That left one last problem. The ritual had to be performed outside under a full moon. Don't ask me why. I never paid much attention to that astrology stuff, but now I'm summoning demons, I should probably have a more open mind. Daniel says we can't do it at his as the garden is overlooked by what's-her-name from morning TV. I pointed out that she's always banging on about how she has to go to bed early because of the crazy start time, but Daniel says we still can't risk it. Besides, her and Daniel had a big falling out last bonfire night because she had a big fireworks display in her back garden and really upset his dogs. Poor animals were terrified by all accounts. Some people have no consideration. So anyway, we can't do a human sacrifice there. After a lot of umming and eyeing, I tentatively suggest the dealership. It's out in the Cheshire countryside, and we own that big space at the back, so there's room. I can say it's a sales event for a select bunch of clients. Thing is, though, to do so, I have to get some sales. Luckily, I'm with a bunch of guys whose dreams are about to come true if this works. Carl agrees to get a new BMW Jeep. Drew, a Bugatti, and even William grows a pair and commits to buying a Merc. Well, a hybrid one, so maybe he grew one bollock. Even now, Daniel won't commit to that Aston Martin. Says he's sorting the Virgin and that's his contribution. I'm starting to doubt he was ever serious about that car, but I don't bring it up, not least because he's taken to carrying that ceremonial knife thing around with him. Last week, I caught him stroking it while whispering sweet nothings. First rule of sales, never push a customer who is fondling a weapon. So anyway, the night rolls around and we're sitting in the back room of the dealership having a couple of drinks. It's tense. Just looking at the guys' faces, you can see they're very unsure about this. But we're too far gone now to back out. Metaphorically speaking, we've sat down, so we have to let fate give us the figurative lap dance. Quick side note, I actually once knew a lap dancer called Fate. Nice girl. I think she was studying for a degree in theology. Daniel gets a text to go to the front gate. Nobody's around and there's just a crate containing Anne Widdicombe, all tied up and tranquilised. Obviously not the real Anne, national treasure, but still, it's a bloody good service. I mean, I doubt these guys are on Yelp, but if they were, five stars would use again. We take her into the back lot and everyone puts on their robes. I turn on the lights. Oh yeah, I arranged some cars in a semicircle earlier. With the beams on, they illuminate the altar we've constructed really well. And it also looks pretty badass. Don't know if Bob O'Dare gives bonus points for presentation, but you never know. First rule of sales, always go that extra mile. Also, like I said, I'd started paying more attention in group and I did ask a couple of questions. Apparently, Bob O'Dare is actually called Bolladare. He's the winky, goat-looking chap on the altar. Daniel gave me quite the bollocking for believing his name was Bob. <laughs> I've been thinking, once this is done, I'm going to give Daniel some space. I mean, I didn't like to ask, but I'm pretty sure that his big wish involved the ex-wife, and I don't think it's hoping she remarries and moves on with her life. The guy has some anger issues. So... We stick the still unconscious Anne in my office swivel chair and place her in front of the altar. By the way, odd as it sounds, she really does look quite a bit like Anne Widdicombe. Her hair is dyed blue, which is a big difference, but otherwise pretty close, I think. I mean, maybe it wasn't that close. Let's be honest, and no disrespect intended, who pays that much attention to the features of old girls? Except for Helen Mirren, obviously. The Mirren is the exception to every rule. 
Anyway, we're wearing the robes and doing the chanting. Carl puts a bag over the old girl's head, and I thought that was fair enough. Nobody wants to picture her face when whatever is going to happen goes down, and it is coming. You can feel it in the air. Actual electricity. Now, I know that's a thing people say all the time, but seriously, never mind goosebumps and the hair on my arms prickling up. All of the hair on my head was standing on end. It was like touching one of them big electric globe things they have at the science museum. So was everyone else's. Looked really odd. I mean, even odder than a bunch of middle-aged guys in masks and ceremonial robes standing in a semicircle around an altar illuminated by ten or so of the finest luxury vehicle options currently on the market. It builds and builds, and then there's this... How would you describe it? A ripping noise? Yeah. Yeah, a ripping noise, a flash of light, and whoop, he's there, standing in the circle in front of the altar, big as life and twice as ugly. Bolladair in the demonic flesh. He's like eight feet tall. He's got a sort of goat head and hooves. And weirdly, he's wearing a rather smart suit and eating a chicken drumstick. I got the definite impression we've interrupted him in the middle of dinner. He stands there and looks around for a minute before he roars in this terrifying voice, I am Bonadere, Lord of something, something else about different dimensions. I'll be honest, I was too busy trying not to faint to remember the exact details. Anyway, he roars, who has dared to summon me? And, and then in a much quieter voice, there's a lot of fancy cars about. Gotta be honest, even then, a tiny voice in my head went, oh, I wonder if I could get him into a Bentley. They're famous for their legroom, which he'd definitely need. Can't help myself. First rule of sales, always be selling. Daniel says, it is I, O mighty Lord Bolladere. Daniel Harper, we have brought you here to perform the rite of Fashrantandanga. I and my coven, we're a coven, first I'd heard of it. Didn't even know men could be a coven, but anyway. We have brought you this sacrifice. Now, here is where it gets weird. I know it's already pretty weird with the goat man and everything, but still. Daniel points at where the so-called sacrifice is sitting. These masks, by the way, really restrict your field of vision. I can only assume that's why none of us noticed until this point that suddenly the non-Anwidicum Anne Whittacombe has got the bag off her head, is now not only fully conscious, but also untied and is busy lighting a pipe, like a smoking pipe. I mean, come on. She takes a couple of puffs, looks up at Bolladere and then says, oh, hello, Bob. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, isn't there? First, I know it's not the most important thing, but the fact that the goat guy answers to Bob... I take that as a bit of personal vindication. Second, it dawns on me that seeing as she turned up already bound, gagged and drugged, we were, in hindsight, very lackadaisical about securing the sacrifice. Third, she seems very relaxed, which is definitely not good news for us. This is confirmed when Bob sits down in the circle and in a whiny voice says, Oh no, Betty, please, not you. Betty crosses her legs and laughs. Afraid so, Bob? You've been up to your old tricks again, haven't you? This is when Daniel decides to get back involved and says, Silence, hag. You will not speak to Lord Bolladare like that. 
At which point she breaks out laughing and Bolladare, or Bob or whatever, points at Daniel and says, I'm not with him. It seems like that's news to him, says Betty. Daniel is holding the knife in one hand and the grimoire in the other. She points at the book and the bloody thing only flies through the air and lands in her hands. She starts flicking through it. <laughs> so you're still peddling this old shtick then, Bob? He says nothing, just sits there, arms folded. She spins round and points at me. You! What did the great Bob do for you? Now, I don't know whether it was nerves or magic or what, but I tell her. He helped me sell a car nobody wanted. He got a work colleague out of my way by making her ill, and he had me feeling as randy as an 18-year-old. Betty nods and laughs again. Now, let me see a little bit of light poisoning. That last bit. My, you boys fall for that a lot. A little Viagra in your food or drinks bottle or whatever. Plus, let's not underestimate the power of suggestion. I mean, you're all clearly idiots. And what was the first bit? Oh, yeah. Somebody bought a car. She spins back round and looks at Bob. This sounds a lot like you're still working with Mickey. No, says Bob. I've not seen him since. He stops because over in the shadows we hear a scream and then a bloody eagle appears, carrying this two-foot-tall green scaly fella that it's got by the ankle. It dumps him in the circle right into Bob's lap. Then it flies off into the night. Betty laughs and says, you were saying? This Mickey fella sits there and says, I didn't do nothing. Betty gives a big theatrical sigh. Come on, Mickey, she says. Show the nice man. The little guy stands up and before my very eyes transforms into a blonde with a killer rack, as in the one who bought the Mona Lisa. I was like, holy shit, she bought a car from me. And she, he says, yeah, and it's an absolute lemon. Broke down two days later. <laughs> Brad chips in with how she returned his lost wallet. And then Daniel, in this really weird voice, says, Sasha? Wait, says Betty, what did she do for you? He doesn't answer, which makes me think we all know what she did for him. Now, I don't know what made him snap. It might have been that it turned out the woman of his dreams was a two-foot-tall goblin-type dude. Not that I've got any problem with that. The dude part, I mean, like I said, absolutely no problem. Anyway, Daniel suddenly runs at them, screaming, knife over his head like a total madman. No, shouts Betty, and she tries to do something, but before she can, Daniel has exploded. I don't mean he's gone mental or attacked someone, I mean he's actually exploded. As soon as he made contact with the circle, boom, it is raining down, soon-to-be-divorced guy who was something big in plastics. I really wish I'd not raised my mask. I got some of him right in my mouth. After that happens, everyone else makes a run for it. Betty does some hand gestures in the air, Bob and Mickey disappear, and I'm left standing there. Bits of Daniel are everywhere. And I mean everywhere. I say to this Betty woman, look, what am I going to do about this? This place is a mess and we open in a few hours. She tells me baking soda is good for getting bloodstains out, calls herself an Uber and buggers off. I ring Karen, who tells me I'm drunk and not to bother coming home. I clean myself up and head to the 24-hour Tesco to get some baking soda. Then I'm cracking on with the cleaning. It's not easy. Several of the cars have their paintwork damaged. Best guess is it might have been Daniel's stomach acid. He was a very bitter man. So, not long after dawn, after working my arse off for most of the night, I'm nearly done when bloody Janine turns up for work. Class SWAT. 
Who comes in at 7am, I ask you? She gives me a suspicious look, but I say I'm just cleaning up after last night's sales event. She nods, but says there's something wrong with the BMW outside at the front. Windscreen has been smashed in. I was so busy cleaning up out back, I'd not paid any attention to the front. I laugh it off, say the front is nothing to do with me. If only I'd gone and looked first. It turns out that Daniel's head, when it blew off, managed to clear the entire building. I mean, that's insane. First I know of it is when Janine starts screaming. She's only bloody found it in the beamer's footwell. I tell her, relax, it's okay, I know him. But all that means is she runs inside and locks herself in the manager's office, which, let's be honest, she clearly has her eye on, and rings the police. When they turn up, I try and explain calmly what happened, but before I can, they're pinning me to the ground, and, well, one thing leads to another. Still, I like it here, and I've got big plans for when I get out. Gonna start up my own dealership. Gary over there is already committed to buying a new BMW off me. Admittedly, he also spends half the time telling everyone he's George Clooney, but still, gotta start somewhere. I've also got Barry, who thinks he's invisible, interested in a Porsche. Challenging to negotiate with him because he gets really upset if you look directly at him. But first rule of sales, work with what the customer gives you. I've been talking to Keith, too, about an upgrade, but he keeps rubbing himself against me. Again, I have absolutely no problem with it, but it's just not something I'm into. Also, he's willing to trade one of his blue pills for two of my green ones and take it from me. Those blue pills really do provide the smoothest ride imaginable. Anyway, enough about me. What are you driving at the minute? Thank you for listening to the Stranger Times podcast. If you've enjoyed it, then please leave a rating wherever you get your pods. It really does help. And the Stranger Times novel by C.K. McDonnell is out on January 14th, 2021 and is available to pre-order right now from all good bookshops and some bad ones. And check out thestrangertimes.com for more weird news and to sign up to the newsletter where you can also get yourself a sweet free ebook containing some Stranger Times short stories. This podcast is produced by Rob B. at BEE with Ed Wilson exec producing and all materials are copyright McFory Inc. Limited. All of the short stories are written by me, C.K. McDonald, and I also write the news with additional material by Sam Gore, Graham Goring, Ken Johnson, Mick Ferry, Scott Bennett, Andy White and Juliet Myers. The news is read by James Cook and the music is done by Alan McGuire with John McCullough as musical Sven Galley. Sven Galley